Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. With the year halfway over, today we're looking at some of the best films, performances, and screenplays of 2020 so far in something we're calling the Mid-Year Awards. Welcome to Film Club. Okay, folks, welcome back to Film Club. Yay. It's uh, been a few weeks. We took a few weeks off there in the summer, but we are back with a brand new episode. Um, Katie, how was your time off? It was great. I um, I actually uh, didn't spend a lot of time watching films. I'm going to admit that. I think it's important to, um, I refer to it as airing out your brain every once in a while. And so I just kind of made a point of, you know, reading books and, um, you know, doing stuff around the house and going going for drives, things like that. Uh, things that don't necessarily require um, a whole lot of visual <laughs> screen stimulation. I try to stay away from screens as much as possible. I agree with you in principle. I have a hard time doing it. I, uh, <laughs> every year when we leave for the holidays, I always tell myself, like, I'm not watching movies over the break. And then <laughs> I usually make it about four days, maybe. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. watching something again. Yeah, like... There was one day where I watched, there's like this uh, competition show on HBO Max called Legendary, and it's mm. like ballroom, like, uh, you know, like in Paris is burning, but it's a competition show. Oh, nice. I, wa- I watched all of it in one day, so, you know, I wasn't being completely, you know, <laughs> I broke yeah. my own rule a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we're about, we're about halfway through 2020 now, maybe a little over at this point. Uh, it's almost August, and it's obviously, it's been a very unusual year for movies. Um, Everything, every pattern that we've learned in our lifetime of going to the movies has been thrown out the window because of the ongoing uh, pandemic here in the United States and in the rest mm-hmm. of the world. As of recording this, uh, they announced this morning the Venice Film Festival lineup, and um, it is not huge. <laughs> and it is not <laughs> packed with significant films, at least from from the outside looking in. Right. Um, and I think that we're we're going to see for the rest of the year. I think we're we're going to see we're not going to see a lot of uh, what you would call necessarily huge movies, uh, for one thing, because uh, Hollywood is. Uh, I mean, the Hollywood studios have basically said. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say by the end of the year, like we may not see a single film open in theaters. Yeah, it's possible, and you know, not only because of things being delayed, you know, that are sitting on the shelf, but also. Uh, this drought's going to last for a little while because everything that would have gone into production in the spring and summer just isn't. So, you know, this could stretch out quite a while. It could, although I think it, it's. I think that's going to express itself in a slightly different way, which is mm. that there are actually tons of movies right now that are ready to go. Mm-hmm. So I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see when eventually when theaters do open again uh, or when studios make the decision to start opening things in mass via VOD or or digital. Although, yeah. again, I, I just think that, like, there's no way we're going to see a Marvel movie on... Unless this is something that that that, str- that really genuinely stretches on for a few years. Mm-hmm. And God, I hope it doesn't, but... Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless that happens, uh, I think that we're go- what we're going to see is we're going to see a long period of nothing or very little mm-hmm. opening. Mm-hmm. And, and then once it is, uh, quote-unquote, safe for people to go to the movies again, we're going to see a bunch of movies all at once. Well, I mean, that would be really fun. I look forward to that, you know, if that comes true. That's actually kind of an optimistic way of looking. Things, 
casino. Yeah. Once the theaters open, it's going to be a big rush of movies, and we're all going to have a great time. I like that. <laughs> I like that view of, of things. Uh, so the Academy has ha- announced uh, a couple months ago um, that it, the way it was going to be handling this year, and and I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm not entirely convinced that there's going to be Oscars this year at all. Mm-hmm. But um, if they are, they're going to be later than than normal. Um, yeah. They've Which combined Oscar years before, I believe. That has happened in the past. It's been a long time, though. Yeah. It's been a very long time since that happened. Um, yeah. So their current plan, I think, is to uh, – they've basically moved the awards to April. And what they've done is mm-hmm. they've extended the the eligibility window through, like, I think late February or something. Um, and uh, I'm th- – this, th- this particular plan irritates me a lot, if, if I can be honest. Um, okay. Because I think it's the Academy basically saying the movies that we would want to nominate, the movies that are normal that are in our normal wheelhouse, will prop may not be out by the end of the year, but they might be out a couple months later. So mm-hmm. we're basically going to change our rules for the first time in forty years in order to accommodate films that more that more cleanly fit the definition of an Oscar movie. Ah, uh, so they're showing their hand in terms of what they actually take seriously as Oscar movies and yes. what what they kind of um, look down upon or have contempt for, you mean? Yes, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. or movies that they would just never pay any attention to. Exactly, um, yeah. Which is, uh, hey, ignoring someone's a great form of contempt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, it, it bothers me because I actually think that 2020 so far has been kind of an interesting year for film. Totally, I agree. We uh, we ran a few, uh, like maybe a couple weeks ago, we ran a piece on the best movies of the year so far, which we do every year. And, uh, you know, looking at the, the I think the, the, the 25 films we selected this year for that, unranked, we just, they were just in alphabetical order, or sure. sorry, in chronological order from when they opened. I, I do think it's been a pretty interesting year for movies, and I, I think that we just have not seen much in the way after, obviously after February, there's been very little in the way of um, big theatrical releases mm-hmm. or Hollywood studio films or even stuff from mini majors like Fox Searchlight or something or, or Focus Features because all of those um, – all of those distribution houses are are all uh, essentially waiting to release their films uh, to a to a later date, possibly next year. At this point, because everyone's at home right now, because everyone is sitting on their couch, there have been tons and tons of films released to to video on demand, to digital platforms. There ha- there hasn't really been a shortage of movies. There's been a shortage of the kind of movies that we tend to think of as um, maybe awards caliber. But yeah. Tentpole movies also, you know, right. they're, they're two different categories, but, you know, you're talking about, like, Marvel movies this year. That type of film is completely absent this year. Right, exactly. And but if, if I'm honest with you, I mean, those are not the type of movies that, that I ever find myself pulling yes, for exactly. during the award season, you know? Like, if um, they had come out, you know, I wonder if any of the, you know, like, if any of them would have ended up on our best films of the year so far list. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tenet, maybe, if Tenet had been out. Although, I, actually, sure. I think even with the timing of that feature, uh, that wouldn't have even necessarily made the cut. Tenet, obviously, has now been removed. Tenet was sort of being used for a while as the barometer of, like, it, are things going to return to normal because mm-hmm. that was the movie that for the longest time was was in, they were insisting was still going to open in July as, as all the other studios moved their projects way back or took them off the calendar Tenet was like nope we're opening in mid-July 
July. And then July rolled around and Warner Brothers said, okay, we'll open in late July. <laughs> um, and then as the disastrous reopening uh, continued uh, unabated, uh, it sort of everyone realized that, that late July was not going to be possible. So Tenet moved to mid-August. And now, uh, inevitably, perhaps, it's been removed entirely from the calendar until some unspecified further date. Yeah. As of yesterday, they announced some plans to release Tenet in other countries. Yes. And this is my hot take for the day. I think that that is completely understandable and maybe a good thing because I think that if Tenet had come out in America in mid-July in the few theaters that were open, um, it kind of would have just reinforced bad behavior, to be honest. And maybe the Americans do need to see. No, see, if you get your act together and wear your mask and do what you're supposed to do, then see, you can go to the movies again. Like, I see no reason why Tenet shouldn't open in New Zealand right now. Movie theaters are open in New Zealand right now. I don't see why not. And... You know, in terms of Hollywood business, the international box office gains in importance all the time. I'm not fully abreast on what the theater situation is in China right now. But, you know, if if other countries are ready to go, I see no reason why they should wait around for us. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I will say Sucks that. Sucks for uh, us, but. It know. does. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, uh, one of the problems is that uh, something like Tenet probably is built around a number of um you know, uh, sensitive plot revelations or twists. Sure, and, uh, there is that. The internet, yeah. <laughs> the internet is going to ruin this for a lot of people in the States, but um, I, I actually do think But that's what it, it, we need to hear. We need yeah. to have some things ruined. We need to have some inconveniences. <laughs> we need to look at the rest of the world and go, why do they get to watch Tenet and I don't? Because yeah. they got their act together. That's why. Like, yeah. I'm a little tough love at this point with people. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, it really does underline the extent to which, um, and this is something that we've known, I think, for a few years now, but the extent to which the international box office is arguably just as important mm-hmm. as the U.S. box office now when it comes to these giant, expensive blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when uh, I remember there was a certain turning point that uh, that I found significant, which was when a sequel to Pacific Rim got greenlit. And uh, I remember at the time that that Pacific Rim was discussed as this flop in in the United States. But that movie made huge amounts of money overseas. And uh, you kind of realized at a certain point that the Hollywood studios do not need it to make a bundle in the U.S. if they can make that money elsewhere. Yeah, Um, no, not at all. And there's certain franchises, you know, this is a little tangential, but Star Wars never really took off in China. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like uh, Star Wars, that's part of the reason why Marvel is growing more so while Star Wars is kind of trying to figure out what to do and where to go because MCU movies play really well in China and Star Wars just never really took off there. That's interesting. Uh, it also explains why a number of, of U.S. blockbusters will have characters played by Chinese actors. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you for know. sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> they'll be, they'll be like almost like shoehorned into the film sometimes where it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, here's a major box office draw for, for the audience for audiences in China. Absolutely. Uh, well, so anyway, uh, sort of we sort of got off track there a little bit, but uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I think the point is that we've made uh, it's actually been a kind of interesting year for movies. So absolutely, what we'd like to do today, I think, is talk about uh, talk about the year in movies that it's been through uh, something that we're calling the mid year awards, mm-hmm. and uh, basically we're going to go through the major eight Oscar categories, and each of us is going to discuss 
sort of our ideal nominee for each of those categories. Mm-hmm. Um, not not the ones that we suspect will be nominated, because again, I think with the Academy changing its rules, I think a lot of these films, I can't speak for your choices because I have not seen them yet, but <laughs> I will say that a lot of the ones that I have selected myself, uh, I don't think have a snowball's chance in hell of being Oscar nominees. Yeah, no, definitely. There's a couple I'm looking at here where <laughs> it would just never happen. <laughs> right, right. There's only one on my list that I would put actual money on for the real Oscars. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to uh, mention, you know, and talk about it being an interesting year for movies, it's something that I've noticed is when I was making up my list, like a lot of the movies that I was looking at and including were uh, written and directed by women. It's mm-hmm. been a very strong year for women writers and directors. And you could perhaps be a little bit cynical about that and be like, see what happens when it's not overshadowed by tent poles. But, um, you know, you, I, I'm just going to accentuate the positive and say that, you know, people like uh, Kelly Reichardt and Eliza Hittman, who may never, rarely, sometimes, always, and, you know, uh, Kathy Yan, who made Birds of Prey, like, they get a lot more attention. And um, Channing Godfrey Peoples, who made Miss Juneteenth, they pro- all probably got more attention in their films did than they would have if they weren't, you know, if it was uh, normal circumstances and they were being overshadowed by big blockbusters. I like that, although I will say that the the, the depressing response to that might be that a lot of the um, a lot of the studios that are handling uh, some of these films sort of see them as ones that, oh, well, they could they people can just watch these at home. They don't need their theatrical release. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, um, yes. There's a lot of well, you know, it's this is a topic for a whole other podcast about like what types of movies um, do women get hired to direct? What types yeah. of you know women direct is you know like uh, films that are quote unquote more personal or you know quieter? Mm-hmm. You know, indies and stuff like that tend to have more women directors because there is still this bias that a woman isn't really capable of taking the reins of a. Big blockbuster production right yeah that's a whole other thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so well, well let's um let's kick this off with the screenplay awards yeah let's talk about the screenplay awards first uh, my favorite category growing up and i actually do think in terms of the oscars the category where often some of my my favorite films of the year actually do end up doing pretty well truly know? truly um, screenplay is where um the movie that should have won <laughs> wins right exactly yeah. of the time, yeah. <laughs> where spike lee or charlie kaufman can mm-hmm. can represent for the year in film you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's start with original screenplay if we're, we're going to play by Oscar rules, I guess, and yeah. divide the screenplay categories into two. We'll start with original screenplay. That is a screenplay written uh, with no prior source material, just uh, a movie written directly for the screen. Uh, what's your pick, Katie? Mine is a little bit out of the box, but this is a movie that I think about a lot, and I think that it uh, the reason that I picked it for screenplay is because uh, the story is so inventive and the way that it's structured is really surprising and inventive. I went with Baccarat, which was written by uh-huh. Kle- Kleber Mendoza Fijo and Julio Giuliano Dornelis, please forgive me. I uh, probably pronounce those Portuguese names more like Spanish ones, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's the one that I picked. That is a Brazilian, this one actually played at Cannes last year and came out in March, and it does this really um, inventive genre exercise. You know, if you read the review, I, you know, pretty much say what happens in it, but I'm not going to say here. But it it, it, def- it turns halfway through, and it kind of accomplishes two different types of films in one, while also light, sort of lightly um, 
teasing both of the styles of films. Like it starts off as, you know, a sort of low key slice of life in, you know, rural Brazil, which is the type of film, you know, you expect to see, you know, it's kind of playing on art house expectations, which I think is very fun. Yeah. I mean, the movie sort of, um, it's set in this small village in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And uh, for a little while, it sort of looks like it's just going to be this kind of affectionate portrait of life in rural Brazil, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, where we're just going to where we we meet this this kind of ensemble of characters there, there's there's a doctor and various other uh, various other townsfolk and um, at a certain point in the film uh, I mean I feel like the movie's political aspirations are clear very early on yes but at a certain point the thing takes a a very sharp jarring uh, pivot into uh, into we'll say uh, pulpier genre fare. Yes, yes. It turns yeah. from the type of movie that you would see in a film festival uh, catalog, a film that you would at, like these absolutely these kind of like slice of life dramedies, you know, international ones. Film festivals are full of these. And then it turns into, I guess, uh, a Midnight Madness tip selection halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, so Katie, my pick is uh, actually another film that premiered at Cannes last last year, um, mm-hmm. a lifetime ago at this point. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. Yeah, and it's uh, it's another sort of genre inflected drama, and the film is The Whistlers. Yes, uh, I like this one. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's the new film from Cornelu uh, Pornboyu. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the he's a Romanian filmmaker who uh, kind of specializes in films that weaponize your uh, weaponize your tedium against you in some ways. <laughs> like he is sort of an expert at 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 deliberately boring setups and deliberately boring scenarios. Spoken uh, like a man who's watched Satan Tango for no reason at all. Just because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of boring cinema in general. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, his films are sort of deliberate, sort of deliberately play with tedium in some ways um, mm-hmm. and they can be they can be very funny um, he, he made a film called Police Adjective many years ago and uh, another one called The Treasure that kind of snuck up on me that um, is literally literally has two characters wandering around a yard looking for buried treasure and there's just long sequences of them pushing this beeping device around the backyard <laughs> and, and like to a certain sensibility that 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 sound effect the beeping yeah. becomes funnier the more that it, the more that we hear it in these sort of long takes where we're just watching them. Um, But The Whistlers is is a real change of pace for him. Yeah, what's interesting to me about your choice of this when you're talking about um, uh, The Whistlers, to me what really struck me about this film was the direction because he pulls off this really specific, really cool, interesting that is subdued but also colorful at the same time. He pulls off this very tricky um, tone in the film. So well, what was your thought in giving it a screenplay award? I just think it's it's very cleverly constructed in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, the, the film is kind of his version of, uh, honestly, something like a Tarantino crime caper. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think that it uh, it's it's nothing revolutionary, honestly. But I think that the way that it, that that it that it jumps around in time, and the way that it sort of keeps us on our toes um, and unfolds this it f- unfolds this caper is is pretty clever and well constructed. Um, I, I do think you're right that it's that it's uh, it's also kind of a triumph of direction. Yeah. Um, really, uh, I mean, for me, a big part of a, a big part of this movie's appeal was just seeing this director who I thought I had pegged. 
uh, takes such a wild left turn in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the movie opens with Iggy Pop's The Passenger, and yeah. I wasn't sure at first if, if that was a joke, you know? Um, I was yeah, like, Yeah, it's uh, a very Danny Boyle kind of touch, and I think that it is kind of goofing on, you know, the post snatch crime cinema as well, which is just kind of of a piece with the Tarantino. It's all, you know, that boldly stylized late 90s, early 2000s style. Because it's not really a subversion yeah. of of those those kind of movies. It's just kind of doing them, you know, in yeah, its own in its own way. Romanian register, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, his films are all about um, his films are all about life in in modern Romania and about life uh, living life in a in a sort of a pre-dictatorship world or sorry a post-dictatorship world and uh this i think is slyly about that too it just uh unlike his other films uh it just wraps all of that in this really this this fun deadpan delectable crime yarn basically yeah and it's got dialogue that's whistling too so that, yeah you know, exactly your yeah. novelty <laughs> factor that's pretty cool <laughs> yep. uh folks if you would like to hear more about that film uh i mean for one we have a review up on the site but also katie and ignati discussed it uh back in the spring before everything shut down on an episode of film club so you can uh you can check out the video of that as well yep Okay, so let's move on to adapted screenplay. Now, uh, in by Oscar rules, adapted screenplay honors a script that was uh, that is based on uh, a piece of work that was created in a medium other than film. Although I will mm-hmm. say that they also include sequels a lot of the time, which I never totally understood. Huh? Um, is it because they didn't create the characters? Maybe. I guess. I guess the idea is that it's based on a previously existing work. Um, yeah. You know, so the, the previous film would be the source material. But the question I always have with adapted screenplay is, are we looking at the best screenplay that happens to be adapted from something else? Mm-hmm. Or are we looking at the best case of, are we looking at the best j- job adapting something? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I tend to take the latter uh, path because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're making a distinction. You're splitting it up into two awards. It's not just best screenplay. And so I like to look at it in terms of adaptation. And, you know, to go back to last year's Oscars. I think a perfect example of this is uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women adaptation. Like yes. I think that would that that's the like the maybe not the platonic ideal, but it's an excellent example of an adapted like what I want to see in an adapted screenplay. Yes, exactly. The uh, sort of um, remaining true to the spirit of the work while also transforming it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what's your pick for adapted screenplay? My pick for adapted screenplay is the screenplay for Shirley, which is by Sarah Gubbins. Uh, I liked this film quite a bit for a lot of reasons, but um, when I thought about it, I, lo- I what I liked is that it is it's based on a bi- a biographical novel. And so uh, uh, the screenwriter, uh, she was pulling in all these different things to create a portrait of a person, right? She was pulling in a biographical novel. She was pulling in Jackson's own work. She was pulling in Jackson's own life. And she's taking all these sources and putting them in. And it is one of the, my favorite kind of biopic, which is a contained biopic, which doesn't try Mm -hmm. to capture the entire scope of someone's life, but dramatize events in someone's life that sort of show who they are as a person. And for this, she took, you know, she kind of played mix and match with different parts of Shirley Jackson's life to create, um, you know, kind of shook him up in a bag so it's not it's not a terribly like you shouldn't take it literally like the circumstances in the film her actual life circumstances were slightly different it's just sort of like a collage of different parts of her life all put together into this fictionalized incident and uh, I think that the way it did that it really turned into a, a very interesting portrait of a very specific person who is shown 
in, you know, a, a complex person who's shown in their complexity. You know, you feel sorry for her, you laugh with her, you th- you're repulsed by her. It's it's a very complex portrait pulled together from a lot of different sources. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to go with First Cow. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly Reichardt's film about a couple of uh, men who meet on uh, sort of the Oregon frontier um, in 1820 and decide to uh, start a business making pastries. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they have to do so by uh, stealing milk from uh, – there's like a rich landowner nearby who's, who's selling milk. We've talked about the show uh, – or we've, we've talked about the film uh, on the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's another episode on that as well. And uh, I think it's a film that 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 works on a number of levels and, and uh, in an ideal world would probably be up for a number of Oscars in a very I- ideal world, I guess, saying that this is, yeah. a, this is a much smaller and quieter film than the Oscars normally gravitate towards. But um, I do think that the screenplay – is, is really strong as well. Um, Reichardt co-wrote it with Jonathan Raymond. Um, he's a uh, novelist and short story writer, and he's become over the years sort of Reichardt's regular screenwriter. Um, mm-hmm. She's adapted a couple of his short stories. And she made uh, both Wendy and Lucy and Old Joy are based on stories from a collection of his. And he has also, uh, he also wrote the screenplays for Meek's Cutoff and Night Moves. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is sort of their latest collaboration. It's based on uh, a novel of his called The Half-Life. And uh, I think one of the things that's interesting about the script is that The Half-Life is kind of is a more sprawling story than the Mm -hmm. one that we get on screen. It actually like jumps continents and there's a whole second there's like a parallel story that takes place in modern times that uh, that that sort of offsets this this story that we're seeing this friendship that we're seeing in in the 19th century. When I interviewed Kelly Reichardt, uh, she it sounds like their process is very collaborative. You know, they she reads the novel. They sit down and talk about what parts and she kind of decides what parts she wants to pull out. And then together they sort of take, you know, the what she wants to take from the novel and adapt that for the screen together. Um, it's it's uh, my interview with her is up on the site, but she talked about the process of adapting in the interview a little bit. And it is very interesting and very collaborative. And that makes a lot of sense, because I think you can see a film where there's never there never appears to be any degree of tension between between how the film is orchestrated, between how it's directed and the screenplay. It definitely yes. is something that feels built from the ground up yep um in this case i think that uh you know we were talking a little bit off mic about how sometimes we when we talk about what we value in a screenplay uh, a lot of the time i think people think of it as almost synonymous to best dialogue yeah or something you know um and i think the dialogue in this is memorable but i think uh a lot of a lot of what we end up attributing to other aspects of a production, sometimes even to things like directing, um, are right there in the script as well. And I yep. think that this thing, um, I think one of the things that I like so much about this film is that it's it's one of many films that came out this year that has a critique of capitalism in it. Indeed. Um, but it kind of bakes that har har um, <laughs> into. Oh my uh, God. Sorry, uh, it sort of bakes that into this story, into this very sweet story of friendship between these two men, and yeah. the, the movie's kind of social and political ideas do never—they never overwhelm this small human story she's telling, and I think that begins on the no. page. 
and I think that's the key to success, you know, like that the critique yeah. is like visible in there. You don't have to tie yourself into knots to find it. But it, but oh, but overall, um, yeah, you could just watch it as like a very sweet story of friendship and um, non-toxic masculinity. If someone yep. goes, oh, toxic masculinity, what's non-toxic masculinity? Sit him down and make him watch First Cow. First Cow. Yeah, First Cow is non-toxic masculinity. <laughs> non-toxic. Yeah. 100% organic. Masculinity. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. So let's move on to uh, let's move on to the acting categories. All right. Um, and we'll start with the supporting. Yes. Uh, with the supporting performances. Um, supporting actress. Who's your pick? Okay, I went way outside the box with this one. In okay. the in the um, you know sort of spirit of this strange year we're in. If there was a best ensemble award that we were giving out, I would give it to Birds of Prey. And specifically, I'm going to give an award to Mary Elizabeth Winstead for her performance as Huntress in Birds of Prey because she did a great job both with the action parts and she is absolutely hilarious in the part. I just, um, so she's playing a member of the ensemble, you know, the Birds of Prey, the DC Comics uh, sort of female. I don't know, super villain, superhero squad. And um, so she's, uh, her character was a member of a mafia family whose entire family was killed and she becomes an assassin a la uh, Lady Snowblood. It's a, it's a very Mako Kaji kind of character arc. And uh, in the film, you know, Huntress is uh, just very, very serious all the time, but the movie kind of plays it off, you know, as a joke, how, how serious and, um, because she's also comes across kind of like gullible and sheltered and unworldly. Like she's this um, supreme hard ass, you know, master assassin, but she has no idea how to talk to people because she's just been yeah training yeah, her entire life. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's this very funny idea in the film that I actually think is largely expressed through her performance more than yeah, anything else. Yeah, totally. Which is just that she is like socially, she has no social skills because she's spent Not her entire life training to be an assassin. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yeah. So you think of like you think of like uh, Lucy Liu's character from Kill Bill or something. If they really got into like, what if that character? What would that? Would it be like to have a conversation with that character? Yeah, or yeah. You know? Would it be like to go out to eat with her? <laughs> you know, yeah, it would be yeah. very awkward. Yeah. yeah, and right, and and that's just it's such a funny take on the character, and I agree that is it's very much expressed through her performance, and um, you know, uh, her, the physicality of her performance really comes across as you know someone who could definitely shoot you in the eye from across a football field, but she is absolutely terrified of having to make small talk. It's a really interesting take on a superhero character. Totally. Okay, so I went with uh, an actress named uh, Norma Cooling mm-hmm. in, in a film called 14. Now, 14 is a uh, it's a drama written and directed by Dan Salit, a New York-based uh, filmmaker. He's also a film critic. Um, basically, every every critic in New York knows him. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so um, It happens sometimes, you know. It does. A lot of the I mean, French not... New Wave guys were film critics. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, plenty of careers have, uh, you know, Paul Schrader's another one who started mm-hmm. as a critic and became a filmmaker. Salit is, I think, largely is largely a film critic and makes makes a movie every few years. I was quite taken by this film. It's it's the, it's the story of uh, two friends who basically two women who have known each other since middle school, basically. And uh, it's about the way that their friendship has uh, changed over the years. And uh, the film kind of establishes this pattern between them. 
Um, one of them is a, a, a social worker, the, the character who Cooling plays. Uh, her name's Joe. She's a social worker who uh, sort of, um, she's a serial monogamist and she sort of is always getting herself into yeah, in, into bad situations of her own creation. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, I think, grapples a little bit with depression and with drugs. And her friend, uh, played by Tally Medell, who's also very good, um, her friend Mara, uh, basically has become sort of her unofficial emotional sponsor. Mm-hmm. Somebody who frequently finds herself in a position of always supporting this person in her life, and uh, no matter what damage it's doing to her own, her own, her other relationships in her own life. Um, yeah, I'm, that's very real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a. I think it's a really. I mean, honestly, I could have. I could have gone with this one for screenplay as well because I yeah. think it's really smart. So it keeps kind of leaping forward in time, and we're seeing the way that this relationship changes uh, mm-hmm. over time. Uh, as uh, as the, the character of Mara sort of realizes what role she's serving this person's life, um, so I was I was not particularly familiar with Kulig before this film. She, she, uh, she had a regular role in Chicago Med, which I think she was best known for. But uh, in fourteen, I think one of the smart things that she does is that she sort of shows us why someone would be why someone would be drawn to this woman and why someone mm. would want to preserve this friendship even as she pulls no punches in in also uh, making her exasperating and in showing us uh, why it would be impossible to be her friend as well, if yeah. that makes sense. No, yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, you always want something that complicates the sort of easy villain or hero narrative mm-hmm. as it is in life, you know? Uh, 14, by the way, is available to stream from home. Uh, it's doing the kind of the virtual theaters route through um, through Grasshopper Films. So you can, uh, if you go to their website, you can find it. It's really worth your time. And <laughs> I always, this is the disclaimer uh, I always uh, present when, when talking about Dan's work, which is that I, I met him once and that he knows a lot of film critics. He, I, they're actually uh, one of our contributors for the site for the AV Club, uh, Vadim Rizov actually has a wordless cameo in the film. <laughs> He's just sitting on a bench. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if every almost every film critic who has seen this film has probably crossed paths with Dan, but okay. please don't hold that against it. It's actually, it's a very strong film. I haven't met Dan, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to supporting actor. Um, who do you got for that, Katie? Well, for this one, this is the only one of my ch- picks for this, you know, uh, awards that I think could actually be reflected in actual award season. You know, fingers crossed. And that is Delroy Lindo in The Five Bloods. He plays one of the five bloods of the title, which are five uh, black Vietnam veterans who go back to Vietnam to uh, ostensibly on a sort of you know tourist trip to visit basically where one of the member of their company died, but really to try to dig up some gold they buried back in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, each member of the crew kind of has their own personality, but Delroy Lindo's character is really interesting, and he turns in a really great performance as a... He is a... He's a Trump supporter. He's a conservative guy. He's an angry guy. He's got a lot of resentment, you know, about the way his life has gone and what, you know, the way he feels that he's been treated by the world. And it's a perspective that it's almost more compelling when you don't agree with it, if that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. he doesn't take it into like a cartoonish screaming place. He takes it into a human place. So you can hear what he's saying, but at the same time, like he's, you can say, I don't, I just don't, I don't understand that viewpoint, but the way that he's conveying it, this character is really going through a lot of uh, emotion 
behind what he's saying. And so it's very, it's, the combination is very compelling. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you. Um, I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, uh, Lindo was my choice as well um, <laughs> for supporting actor. Um, I think one of the things, honestly, I think one of the things that really um, stands out to me about the performance is that I don't know if, if Spike Lee has actually totally figured that character out. Yeah, that's part of what's compelling about it, because you hear what he's saying, and you're like, I don't know. But then, but just the, the humanity of the performance is so strong and compelling. Yeah, it's like Lindo kind of fills in some of some of the blanks Precisely. That, that Lee did not fill in. Because mm-hmm. I actually think that there is... I, I like the Five Bloods. I, I have I have some issues with it. I don't think it's a great film. I think I think it's a flawed one in some ways. Yeah, um, I, it, it's not my top of the year. No, right. And I think some of uh, one of my issues is that 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 particular character he's playing is so interesting that a part of me wishes that Lee had made that the movie. I mean, how do you go from being from be from being in the '60s to being somebody in the '60s who has some 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 revolutionary leanings, you could say, somebody right. who who's uh, who has some progressive ideas to the world. How do you go from that to being a Trump supporter in in 2020? And I don't know if Lee ever totally makes that journey that that which which to me should be the almost should be one of the meat. Well, one of the main meats of this film. I well, don't know it if he is. ever it's one truly... of the meatiest. It's definitely the meatiest character. One of the meatiest character arcs in the film. You it know? certainly is, but I, I don't know if Lee ever really, um, ever really digs into. No, no, I don't think he's super. I don't think Lee is super interested in the why, which is right. why I think that it is such a good performance because like you said uh lindo fills in those blanks yeah he's he sort of he sort of helps us to understand this character better mm-hmm. um and yeah i mean it's just a it, it, it's a it's a really powerhouse performance when it needs mm-hmm. to be you know i mean he mm-hmm. he he has kind of um at a certain point the movie becomes this sort of plunge into the jungle and this this story of paranoia among these men and uh he starts to take center stage a little bit more there's this he he delivers this uh this really powerful house monologue actually let's hear it let's uh, let's take a minute and just listen to at least a little bit of that monologue they ate me in that lymphoma agent orange herbicidal stew those army bastards they scorched the earth with it sprayed that shit in the air and the water my bloodstream my cells my dna and my motherfucking soul but i ain't dying from that shit you will not kill Paul. You hear me? Hear me? You will not kill Paul. And the U.S. government will not take me out. I will choose when and how I die. You dig? You couldn't kill me then with three tours. You showing the fuck can't kill me now. Right on.
So yeah, I mean that's what Lindo's doing in the film. Um, I mean he's a marvelous actor. I, mm-hmm. rec- fairly recently, uh, he he kind of had a viral moment that I thought was uh, that was kind of funny because uh, there was a clip going around Twitter of him uh, telling off somebody on Fox News that gained a lot of traction, and some people had to step forward to be like, "It's a great, it's a great clip," but like that's that's a that's a scene from The Good Fight. Like it's, yeah. it's not really on Fox News saying this. There's a whole scene where he's like talking to a to a, like a pundit yeah. on Fox News and saying, if you want to say the N-word, say it, you know? Yeah, he's like, um, say it, say it, go ahead, say yeah. it. I'm telling you, you can say it, say <laughs> yeah. it. And the guy just doesn't do it. <laughs> and he's he's wonderful on that show, too. I've seen a little bit of that show. He's very good. He's very good in this. It's nice to see him get such a meaty role um, because I, mm-hmm. I feel like we don't always see that from Lindo. And I do agree that uh, I think, I, I don't know how the rest of the year is going to play out. And again, I'm not positive the Oscars are going to happen. But I think if they do happen, Lindo might actually have a shot. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I will say, I since I want to give another choice just because we, we both agree on Lindo. And I, I will just stump uh, additionally for Russell Crowe in True History yeah. of the Kelly Gang. So Crow play, plays this Australian bush ranger named Harry Power. He's uh, sort of this uh, this outlaw figure who takes our main character, Ned Kelly, under his wing. And he doesn't have a ton of screen time in the film, but it it's it's the kind of performance that um it he's playing this sort of uh this sort of vulgar rap scallion and mm-hmm. i just feel like i have not seen a crow performance with this much life and humor and energy f- from him in like in ages i mean it's at least his his most it's at least his strongest performance since the nice guys yeah. and i might say since further back than that even um he just makes such i mean the movie is basically about ned kelly the the the, the famous bush ranger and how his childhood basically shaped him, and uh, it takes it takes that led that that sort of legendary story of, of, of sort of Kelly's rise to infamy, and says um, we're going to marginalize all like we're going to marginalize a lot of the exploits and a lot of the stuff that's been dramatized to death. And we're going to focus largely on his childhood. So it becomes this Mm -hmm. kind of origin story, but one that's also about the notion that Kelly, that Kelly was basically doomed to this life and to, and to this fate because of the people in his life and because of the society and the conflicts he was born into. Yeah. And Crow plays kind of one of those formative influences. Exactly. Yeah, and you and you said uh, you said he doesn't have a lot of screen time, but I mean, and I very much agree with what you're saying, which is that he does, he's not on the screen for a lot of time, but he is very very potent when he's on the screen. He is a very yes. he's a presence, a heavy presence, a powerful presence, a threatening presence whenever he's on the screen. And he looms over the movie in a sense because mm-hmm. if the movie is about somebody being being shaped into the man they're going to become, we can basically watch it. And realize that when, later on, we can sort of see some of Crow in the man that Ned Kelly becomes. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it, imitating I, what he saw. Totally. Um, and I, I think it's like it's a total star performance, and it's um, again, it, there's not a lot of screen time, but that sort of makes it the ideal supporting performance. I think. All right, let's move on to the lead, the the, the sort of lead acting categories. All right, all right. It's getting later in the night. We've had a couple couple <laughs> dance numbers, a couple jokes <laughs> landed, a couple jokes didn't land. A couple useless montages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> People are furiously tweeting about who was left off the in memoriam. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, We're getting deep into it. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so who do you have for best actor? Best actor. So for best actor, I went with um, 
I, we were saying off mic, uh, a lot of the, and on mic actually, a lot of the more gentler kind of performances and films are making more of an impression this year. And so mm-hmm. with that, I went with John Magaro in First Cow. Yeah. I really loved his performance as Cookie in this movie. It's it's a performance where he, Cookie doesn't say a whole lot, you know, but he he's sort of the opposite of Russell Crowe and Kelly Gang in that he is a, he is a presence also, but he is he just sort of radiates this warmth and good humor and gentleness and he is the exact antithesis of what you would think of as a frontier man you know because there's this very uh i guess macho sort of uh, perception of what you know a man was like out there but he but you know he's also he can take care of himself he is resourceful he's tough he can do all these things but he does it without a lot of swagger and machismo he just is who he is and has this sort of quiet presence about him that is very comforting and warm uh he just he kind of embodies the ideals of the film i think i would agree yeah and i think we kind of we can tell um, almost immediately when we first see him that he it's almost like he he sticks out in this world like mm-hmm. he he does not belong in a world this grim and hard, you know? Right. Like early on in the film, he's traveling with a group of um, settlers and he's the cook for the group. And and they just, they give him such a hard time. You yeah. know, they they just, they're really cruel to him because they, they don't know how to interact with someone like this. They've probably never seen someone like this before. Well, and I think one of the first things that we see, and this is just a moment from the movie that sticks out to me so much. And mm-hmm. I just, I returned to in my head I think the first moment we see him he's he's like in the woods and he sees a lizard and the lizard has fallen on its back and he just he kind of flips it over and writes it Mm -hmm. and it's just like such a perfect little gesture that shows like how out of step he is with the brutality of the people he's with and with this world Um, I agree it's a really warm charming performance Mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of a heartbreaking one too I think yes Yes, because he doesn't belong in this world. Right. The world is not ready for him. Okay, so I went with um, with Jean Desjardins for Deerskin. Mm. Now, uh, Desjardins actually has won an Oscar. He won for The Artist back in 2012. That's um, right. Yeah. Um, he's a French actor, and a lot of his uh, a lot of his work, uh, at least prior to the artist, was uh, in kind of broad comedies. Um, so he's kind of a gifted physical comedian. Uh, I'm no big fan of the artist, and honestly, he's never. I've always it's it's always been clear that he's he's a very gifted actor, but I've never seen him in a role that I particularly uh, that particularly spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's quite good in Deerskin, and and Deerskin is the latest sort of absurdist comedy from Quentin Dupai, um, the uh, the French the French electronic artist who is now a filmmaker. He made um, he made Rubber a few years ago. That was sort of his uh, his big breakout cult movie. Yeah. And he spent the last few years uh, making uh, kind of absurdist one joke comedies. I well, I'm gonna stump for Wrong. I really like Wrong. You like I, Wrong? Okay. Yeah, I do yeah. like that movie. Um, it is it is a one joke movie, but it um, I guess I just always appreciate it when someone really really commits like they do yeah, it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Tonally, content, <laughs> performance, it's all committed, baby. <laughs> 
Well, Deerskin is sort of a, a change of pace for him. And I think mm-hmm. it, 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 in its own way, it's also a one joke comedy. And the joke is um, Desjardins plays this uh, this recently divorced man who's clearly going through something of a midlife crisis who spends uh, basically a huge chunk of his savings on a deerskin jacket. Mm-hmm. And that becomes his singular obsession. He just wants this deerskin jacket. Like he, he's obsessed with how he looks in it. It, it. it sort of becomes this this kind of this metaphor for his vanity. But the movie turns into uh, well, I don't want to say too much about where it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a comedy, but it's also one with some very sinister undertones. Um, I think what's smart about it is that uh, I think what makes it work is Desjardins' performance, and he uh, increasingly it becomes clear that the character he's playing is not it's not okay and and that he actually is he's not a harmless kook he's actually pretty dangerous but the movie his kind of tilt into madness Desjardins never plays like to the rafters he plays it almost like an extension of his midlife crisis um it's such a vanity free performance in some ways Mm -hmm. even though he's playing somebody who's very vain um (laughs) and a lot of the, the comedy is very dry and a lot of it is uh it's just sort of depends on his obliviousness and uh getting laughs from his obsession with this 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 particular obsession because the film is really about I think the, what the film is really about is again without saying too much he, he eventually becomes kind of a filmmaker in a way and the film becomes about this uh, very wide chasm that sometimes separates uh, what we assume to be the intentions of an artist mm-hmm. and the, just the weird like perverse preoccupations that might actually motivate them yeah. and uh, I feel like Desjardins captures that in his performance very very well cool uh okay so how about best actress who do you got for that well for best actress i um you know i was really torn on this one i i will say overall this is like the year of elizabeth moss because she did two really great performances this year but considering she has two great performances to hang her hat on i'm gonna go with nicole bahari and miss juneteenth so in this film nicole bahari uh she's um mostly been in tv she was on this show sleepy hollow for a while i don't know a lot about that show i never watched it but apparently she was very very underappreciated on that show and i've liked everything i've seen her in uh she was also in steve mcqueen's shame and i thought she was great in that she's great in this movie this is another more subtle performance um one thing i liked about Miss Juneteenth. It's a story about uh, Nicole Bahari stars as a woman. Her name is Turquoise Jones. She lives in Fort Worth, Texas. And her whole life, the only thing that she's ever won is she won a beauty pageant when she was in high school. It's the Miss Juneteenth pageant and she got a college scholarship because of it and you know and she's still milking this. You know, she has a teenage daughter of her own at this point and this is still her big achievement she hangs her hat on. And so she really wants her daughter to end their pageant too. She's got it in her mind that like her daughter's going to win too and then she'll get a college scholarship and she's trying to live through her daughter basically. And um but and you could play this as a mother-daughter drama that's really high-pitched, a lot of yelling, a lot of door slamming, a lot of, like, you know, running away, and I know I, a lot of drama could happen. But this movie plays it, I think, a little more realistically by being a little more affectionate. Um, the It's a newcomer that plays her daughter, Kai. Her name is Alexis Chikaizi, I believe is how you say it. Um, and they have a really, really good um, dynamic as mother and daughter. 
And Bahari plays the role. Uh, so now Turquoise, she works two jobs. Uh, she's at work all the time. She just doesn't really have a lot of time for herself. And she's so obsessed with this goal of getting her daughter in the beauty pageant that she doesn't really think about her own life or anything like that. And this is a pretty common thing. This happens a lot, you know, with single moms who work a bunch of jobs and pour everything into their children. And But she doesn't play her like a martyr, but she doesn't play her like a tyrant either. She's just like she she's a, a, a sweet, nice person overall who has good intentions. But sometimes she just gets tired and snapped and gets disappointed and everything. But it's I just found it to be a very, a very loving performance of someone who is really, really trying their best. And that comes across very well in the film. And so does uh, the love that she has for her daughter comes across very beautifully in this film, um, which, you know, another one of these more low key indie pictures that is getting a little more attention because it, it came out <laughs> on VOD. And it came out on, on Juneteenth as well. Yes, um, yeah, was, it, ha- it had well a nice tie in with the with the with the yeah. pageant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a fan of this film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you recommended yeah. it before on the show. So. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right. So. Uh, I am going to go with Elizabeth Moss. Yay! Um, I agree. <laughs> She's had quite a year. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we're huge fans of Moss here at the AV Club. Um, I've never seen her do bad. I've never seen her just completely fuck it up. <laughs> that's the thing. I've, I've, I've never... <laughs> Uh, I've believed every performance I've seen from her, um, mm-hmm. going back to obviously to her days on TV. I think I remember first seeing her on The West Wing that she was she played uh, one of the president's daughters on The West Wing. But uh, she has done increasingly volatile work, I think, uh, on the big screen. Um, yeah. Sometimes Lately. with Alex Ross Perry. Yeah, she kind of specializes in uh, women on the verge of a nervous breakdown to take the title of a Pedro Almodovar yes. movie. <laughs> <laughs> and she and she kind of does that in uh, in both of her films this year, I think. And uh, I think, but the one I think I'm going to go with is The Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a uh, it's another film that I don't think you would describe necessarily as a particular awards magnet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh, you know it's a it's a February monster movie essentially, but the you know I mean originally this project I think it's very interesting by the way that originally this project was supposed to, to star Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man and now it's a film about a woman escaping her abuser draw your own conclusions interesting yeah um, that would have been a little too real if Johnny Depp yeah. played the Invisible Man in this one that would have been a little too real yeah, well, I, I think that his version of it was going to be very different. It was back I when see. this was going to be the, you know, when they were planning this whole dark universe thing, oh, where sure. where the monsters were like the Avengers, oh, and they were going to form universe. a team or something. Yeah, um, that was scrapped obviously after the failure of the Mummy. Actually, the failure of both the Mummy and Dracula Untold. Yeah, it <laughs> took a couple for them yep. to let it go. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they they sort of built the Invisible Man into this standalone. This uh. This sort of very sharp, you could call it almost a gaslighting thriller. It's basically Moss plays this woman who is dating a scientist and uh, she escapes him. And uh, it appears that he's committed suicide, but uh, you are watching a movie called The Invisible Man. So Mm -hmm. perhaps you could draw your own conclusions about um, (laughs) what happens from there. But um, I think she takes, uh, this is is in no way a paycheck role for her. I think that she takes this this part very seriously. And the thing about it is when the, when you have a monster that can't that you can't see you kind of have to do you have to do certain things uh 
as a movie in order to make us understand that menace. And so much of it's almost like Moss in a way is playing the invisible man because mm-hmm. so much of her performance is reactive. And it's a, it's it's about her showing us the paranoia and the fear and the anger towards this character we can't see. So she kind of conjures that monster for us in her performance. Well, you mentioned how uh, Moss's performance, you know, makes the threat real. And I would say that that applies also in terms of the theme of the film, because it kind of makes the Invisible Man into, you know, this metaphor for abuse and gaslighting. And that could come across as kind of hacky or even um, distasteful. But she conveys, you know, the mindset of someone who is a victim of those things so specifically and convincingly that it really makes the theme powerful you know it 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 clicks it works because of her performance yeah she elevates this whole project i think in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways i mean it's i think it's it's a it's a smart take on this material i think in general and i think it's very it's very well constructed and directed but i think that it's moss who makes this into something that we can take seriously as drama on top of being like a, a good time at the movies you know yeah 100 100 percent. yeah um okay so best director who's your pick so my choice for best director is someone who this is her third feature and this is someone who i i it's eliza hitman who made Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. I, I saw Hitman's last film, Beach Rats, and it has a lot of similarities to Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, just in the execution of it and the techniques that she uses to tell the stories. But I felt that it worked so much better and mm-hmm. Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. So I chose that film because I felt like that is a director who is really hitting her stride and has really found her voice and her style and a way to execute it in a way that is, um, you know, uh, serves the story in a very powerful way. Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is a story about a teenage girl in rural Pennsylvania who she travels to New York City with her cousin to get to get an abortion. She's pregnant and she doesn't want to be pregnant. Uh, and so they, they go on this trip to New York and there's very little dialogue in the film. Um, there's a lot of quiet and a lot passes between the two girls just with glances, you know, and there's a lot of sort of me- uh, meaning extracted from what little dialogue there is. And in her earlier work, I honestly found this to be kind of stultifying. It was just kind of time seemed to stop, but it never really sometimes always she uses it to convey the sense of intimacy and the sense of things that aren't talked about. And abortion is very much something that isn't talked about. Mm-hmm. And so I, and so that the, yeah, that's why I chose that one because I felt like it was someone really coming into their own in their own style. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's, she has this sort of uh, observational sensitivity mm-hmm. um, where she's very, very good at sort of locating these little details of um, of environment and character. Um, I agree that this movie is is a sort of a quantum leap forward for her as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think a lot of that has to do with the particular material in this case. Um, right. I've always thought she's a pretty good director, but I think that in this case we're looking at a film where um, the movie is about something that's uh, very significant and timely and it has this kind of it kind of has this people on a mission structure you know, yeah. that if, if her previous work was sort of at times felt I wouldn't say aimless, but sort of we're sort of just observing these characters and at a certain point mm-hmm. that we sort of reach our limit of understanding. In this film, there's 
these characters are going someplace and there's there's this sturdy dramatic backbone you know we've we've talked about the film before we, we did an episode on it on, on film club earlier this year definitely worth seeing and uh, I agree that um, that it's it's a well-directed piece of work yeah she just derives a lot of um, emotional depth from small observations mm-hmm. in a way that is very thoughtful and you know, and to repeat myself well observed you know it's just a very very thoughtful approach to directing the film there's a great scene towards the end where uh, the character is at uh, is at a clinic and she's going through a questionnaire it's where the title comes from mm-hmm. and uh, Hitman is smart enough to know to just kind of keep her camera trained on uh, on her yeah. actor and to just yeah. let and let the implications of of her emotional reaction to this questionnaire speak for themselves. Exactly, exactly. Just even the um, volume at which she responds to the questions. You know, sometimes she'll say yes, and other times she can barely get a word out. Right. And and that sort of subtlety is what I think really uh, makes this a great piece of work. Um, I have a very unsubtle pick for best director. <laughs> <laughs> both are great. I like both, man. <laughs> um, uh, my choice is a uh, a Chinese filmmaker named Dao Yanan, uh, and yeah. he made a film called The Wild Goose Lake. Yeah. Um, now, this movie is it's basically like a it's basically like a gangster noir. The the plot is, I would say that the plot is negligible at best and confusing at worst. <laughs> you know, like sure. it really it could not really matter much less. You know, um, it's it's right. it's the story of basically a gangster who accidentally kills a cop. Um, and has to go on the run, and he has, like, more or less an army of police officers chasing him. So it's this manhunt thriller, and again, I don't, watching the film, I never I, I never connected necessarily with any of the characters, I never connected with this as a piece of storytelling, but as, as just an expressive, like, it's just an expressive piece of style. Um, mm-hmm. I found it like gripping on a scene by scene basis, like um, thrilling. Yes, the use of style is just thrilling in that movie. Yeah, the, the use of light, the use of shadow, uh, the way he films bodies in motion. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the movie is kind of it's kind of just a daisy chain of cool noir conventions in in some ways. Uh, I mean, it, well, yeah, you said that the plot is kind of confusing at times, but honestly, a film like that. The plot is kind of incidental to these sort of like images that are, you know, built up in the mind, you know, to the the sort of like the sort of shadows on the wall of the cave, you know, so to speak. And um, and in this film, he just does that so well that like, who who gives a shit about the plot? (laughs) Yeah. And, And the way that he stages violence is so interesting, too. I mean, there are times when he will pull way back so that we're watching a fist fight from a distance, which sort of emphasizes there's a comic quality about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Other times he's abstracting it in a way where we'll just see a, a drop of blood fall on somebody and we know that a character has died. There's a there's a scene that I would say uh, almost like edges into dream logic where someone is killed with an umbrella. It's just it, the whole film is just this glorious exercise in style, essentially, um, in style and sort of makes the case for style over substance and you know i mean we often i think we often think of something like we think of the idea that the best movie of the year is it, it might necessarily be also be the best directed film of the year but i do mm-hmm. think that there are times when uh material that is uh nothing special can be elevated by 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 the right director and the right approach and in in, in this film i feel like uh the story and and the material is just a clothesline for, for this guy's sense of style and i found it intoxicating from basically start to finish 
And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I love style over <laughs> substance. <Yeah. laughs> okay, so now we're down to the big award. The big award. Dowd, what's your best picture? My best picture pick is The Assistant. Now, that is Kitty Green's film about, I want to say her film about Harvey Weinstein, but the fact of the matter is Harvey Weinstein mm. is not a character in this film. Um, mm-hmm. they're basically, the, the film basically follows uh, a, a young assistant working for, working for a, a, a very powerful movie producer. The assistant is played by Julia Garner, who you may remember from, uh, you may know from Ozark or from or from The Americans. She has a significant role on that for a little while. And she's like the low, she's basically like uh, the the smallest cog in this, in this machine, basically. She's on the low end of the totem pole. She is like first one in, last one out, just a hardworking mm-hmm. assistant. And uh, we never, ever see or even... Uh, or ever uh, we, we, we never see the character who is basically Harvey Weinstein in the film and he's never even referred to by name but it becomes very clear mm-hmm. very very quickly that this is a film about Harvey Weinstein and about the uh, sort of the abuses he committed and the way that he was able to build a system of enablers around him to continue that behavior for years on end um, mm-hmm. and the movie sort of looks at that story through the lens of this procedural about what it would like about a day in the life of this person who is who it turns out is an important part of maintaining that that abusive system but even at, even as somebody who has no power because she is basically she a big part of her job is not just looking the other way but making arrangements that allow him to continue doing this um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I i found the film completely fascinating i found i found it's i think there's a real moral clarity to to its decision to keep Weinstein off camera because I think the film is really about the idea that he was not able to do this simply because he was a he was a, a powerful person in the industry. He was able to do this because there were a number of people in his orbit who basically were willing to look the other way because there was money to be made because they had their own careers to think about. And mm-hmm. um, the movie does something very tricky, which is it sort of puts us in the position where we it puts it puts the our main character uh in a she's shown in a very sympathetic light we want to root for her she's in a position anyone who's had a terrible job can watch the assistant uh you don't have to be part right. of the movie industry if you've had a shitty job you can watch the assistant and, and empathize with her and empathize with what she goes through on a daily basis but the film also suggests that in some way she is a part of this system that allowed this to continue yeah, and I think the choice to not, you know, show Weinstein or say his name or make him a character in the movie also makes a point that it's not just him, that these yes. are, you know, structural systems yep. uh, that uh, that excuse and allow abuses like that, and it's happened other places, and I think that, you know, choosing to structure it that way makes the point that it's the, it's the structure and the system that needs to be reformed. You can't just put one person in jail and say, great, done, you know, and wash your hands of the whole thing. Exactly. It's 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 basically about the idea that Weinstein may be gone, but he left a lot. He left behind a lot of people who are complicit in their own way, um, mm-hmm. and and a system that's complicit. I will say that the assistant is uh, has proven to be uh, divisive, at least with audiences. I think um, uh, the movie earned some very good reviews when uh, when it first opened back in. February or something, uh, including my own, obviously. Uh, but I've seen some of the audience scores. I think people are not necessarily prepared to watch like a, a Dealman-esque procedural about the the mundane day-to-day of somebody in the system, you know? You maybe go into this <laughs> expecting a sensationalized vision of, of the Weinstein story. That's definitely not what yeah, it is exactly. at all. But I think its power comes from that, from um, how much it's willing to sort of... Because, I mean, it, it suggests that 
what Weinstein was doing was built on a built on an empire that had a day to day operation, you know, right. and and that right. there were people who whose jobs were simultaneously to enable his behavior and do the other business of working at it for, you know, for a major movie producer. Yeah. And, and, um, and there is a certain like banal aspect to, you know, like the sort of abuses that he was doing, you know, it's day in and day out over many, many years. And so there is sort of like a, 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 a an everyday aspect about it, yeah. which I don't think people want to see that. And they also don't really like to, people want to have there be a villain, who gets caught yeah. and that's the end of the story and saying like you know well we have to tear down this whole system that's designed to make it possible for abuses like this to happen is a way trickier story than well he's in jail now so everything is fine exactly and this is not know? the story of harvey Weinstein. this is not like a dramatization of how harvey weinstein went down it is a story mm-hmm. of how it, how he was able to continue doing this for so long uh, okay so, so katie what's yours my choice is a film that has come up several times on this podcast already, and we discussed on another episode. My choice is First Cow. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at back at the year, I I really think it's a masterwork. I think that uh, Kelly Reichardt is a master of her style, and I think that it just has a very... It has, you know, the word gentle keeps coming up and it is a gentle film. It doesn't overstate any of its points, but it like it's a touching vision of friendship between two very sweet men. It is a uh, food porn. <laughs> it is a buddy comedy. It is an indictment of capitalism. And it is all those things uh, wrapped up into a very like a beautiful kind of delicate package of something that is very enamored with the natural world which is you know one of Reichardt's signatures as a director and I and I just really think that it is for her uh really not a step up because you know certain women was at this level as well in terms of filmmaking but she threw in a lot of different elements into this one and still managed to make it a very Kelly Reichardt kind of whole which I very much admire. And I think that it is, uh, it's a film that's out of step with its time, but it's also a film that's very out of step with our time. You know, a film that prioritizes cooperation and friendship and uh, is just not, we're in a world where everyone's screaming at each other all the time. And so it's just such a refreshing, reassuring thing to have Kelly Reichardt scoop you up in her arms and carry you along for a couple hours. Well said. (laughs) Um, I'm a fan as well. I think I actually may have... Yeah, I might have underrated it a little bit. We'll see. Uh, I intend to revisit it before the end of the year. I think that by the end of the year, this is going to look like... I don't think it's going anywhere in terms of... um, critical estimation sometimes move, when movies open in in february or march when this did i think the maybe the beginning of march they tend to disappear as the conversation changes i don't think this is going anywhere i mean partially that could also be a product of the fact that who knows what movies we're actually even going to see in the coming months <laughs> yeah you know but this is this movie has stuck with me and i think it's going to stick with a lot of a lot of people as well yeah i think about this movie a lot yeah well great so uh that's the mid-year awards as we've decided Yay. to call it um uh, most most if not 
not all of these movies. Actually, looking at it now, I, I'm pretty sure all of these movies are available to stream from home. So yeah. if you have not seen them, uh, please seek them out. Um, most of them are a, a click of the mouse away. I'll add that if, um, you know, if you're trying to find one of these movies, there's a few different approaches you can take. You can justwatch.com as a website I use a lot. Mm-hmm. You can type in the name of a movie and it shows you where to find it. And that'll show you streaming services and VOD. But there's also virtual cinemas. Um, so just look up virtual cinema plus your city and it'll show uh, what theaters near you are. It, it's a VOD model where some of the money gets kicked back to local movie theaters. A lot of art house theaters are doing it. I know Baccarat, that's how that was released. Mm-hmm. So if um, if you if you're looking on VOD and you're not finding these movies, try to look and see look for a virtual cinema near you and you may find it there. Yeah, there are a few that I think are still in that route. I mean, we talked about 14 and Deerskin. I think mm-hmm. both of those you can still watch through virtual cinemas, I think. Okay, everybody. Well, that's the Mid-Year Awards for Film Club for the year 2020. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. And be sure to join us next week. We'll be kicking off a very special, a full month of programming themed around the films of Christopher Nolan, leading up to the uh, hypothetical, maybe possible release <laughs> of Tenet at the end of August. Uh, until then, I'm Katie Reif. I'm Alex Dowd. Take care. See ya.